grateful. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 24th, 2008. And I, I'm always astounded as to how far back you can go in history to find what to most people would, would believe, actually. They believe that everything happens by chance. Big movements happen by chance and fade away, and new movements in society take over with new agendas, and, and everything's all coincidences. And many historians, authorized historians, are employed to keep you in that tailspin of thinking, because nothing is further from the truth. Even the whole movement towards the greening, the greening of the planet and the carbon taxes, and never mind the changes in society that's happened with great rapidity, mainly in the last 50 years, really, but it was already happening in the 1800s, when a lot of the big movements that were heavily funded, what were then really non-governmental organizations, came on the scene. Heavily funded organizations with what we now call technocrats. A technocrat, according to Professor Carl Quigley, is someone that uh, has real power behind the scenes. He's employed to go between countries and between divisions and departments and governments and get jobs done. He's not elected. He's not responsible and answerable to the people. But they had these technocrats back in the 1800s, actually before, but they became more visible in the 1800s when they pushed this new society idea. The new society was to be a, a type of, uh, as to be the end of individualism. In fact, it was stated in the first manifestos in the 1800s, before Karl Marx uh, was paid to do his one. I think it was uh, James Goodwin Barnby. Barnby was the guy who came up with the term communism. He also used the term communitarianism, a phrase that George Bush's father reintroduced and is pushed towards communitarianism, which goes, goes with governance or global governance. It's all part of the same terminology put out there in the 1800s. And in the 1800s, two factions, I always give you two factions of an idea which then take one part of the population in one direction and uh, the other ones with a different idea or a mindset in the other direction. So that will give you a choice of two, but they end up going back on the same path after a few generations. And remember, those people who run the world work in centuries. They understand how long it, it takes to alter society and opinions, behavior, um, social conduct even. And what is the norms? They give us the norms. And this was talked about in a speech in the 1930s, given at the common Terran meeting in the Soviet Union, when Beria, who was the, the head of the NKVD, as they called it then, which became the KGB, uh, talked about how long it used to take them to introduce a major change within the structure of society. He said it would take 70 years. That was what they called a generation. He said that with the techniques that they were using from Pavlov and introducing through the schools, they could now update children every four or five 
five years, every intake of children would be updated so that they would be ready for what they would experience when they had 20, 25. So it was an ongoing process of updating, like we update programs and computers. But the whole greening business, as I say, was all part of this internationalism and, and nationalism because they gave both ideas to the people at the same time because they had to have conflict going. And the whole idea was that nationalism would end up with centralization of power. That was very important to them. And then they would, they would create alliances, allegiances, and gradually meld into a world system of internationalism. So they gave you one that was supposed to do it quickly, which was communism, and they gave you in the West socialism. But these were all funded by big, the big bankers and the philanthropist societies of their day. The philanthropists are still on the scene today, uh, still growing. And Bill Gates, of course, now is one too, George Soros and Rockefellers and many, many other ones. These are the ones that, that pay the non-governmental organizations. They fund them to demand from government exactly what government wants them to ask. That's the Soviet system, which is completely here, actually. And going back into the 1800s in this old time machine, it's got, you've got to go back and forth all the time. They talked about the end not only of private property, it was a, a movement based on Neoplatonism, really. Uh, Neoplatonism was a creed that came out about the second century in Alexandria, Egypt, which borrowed on Plato's ideas and merged it with logic or science, basically, what they could learn through observing nature towards a world system where an elite, a natural aristocracy, should rule the world, not simply those who were more ruthless, but those who had cunning and, and intellectual abilities. This all re-emerged openly in the 1800s, and then you had Nietzsche and other ones, other philosophers, again being paid and funded, by the way, to put out their, their writings, to stay at home and write, and to help this whole movement along, because even in communism and socialism, the whole idea of superior types was embedded from the very beginning. Eugenics has always had a part in it, and under the guise of equality, etc., it was still understood by those who led the movement that those who had the, the, the better intellect had the right to rule the lesser. Uh, this, in any other era, would be called uh, a, a class problem, but they didn't like to mention that. The class problem was always aimed at someone else. But we come up through all this stuff, and remember, too, in the 1800s, they were rebelling against uh, even the church. It didn't matter what church it was, Catholic, Protestant, or, or the various sects of Protestantism. It, it was simply re rebelling against what had been used up until then as one of the main sticks to control the public and give them a social set of rules that all follow so that they wouldn't end up killing each other. That's basically what religion was for. But like all things that start off, even, even with an ulterior motive, they become completely corrupt within a generation or two. It doesn't take long. The founding fathers of America, who are all Masons, uh, wrote about this explicitly, uh, that they knew that everything that started off with the best of intentions, even if it did, uh, would become corrupt in a, in a generation or so.
Jefferson advocated a revolution. He said it's good. It's good for, for the people and the government to have a revolution every one or two generations because corruption would set in so quickly. Wherever money is, there's power, and you end up having dynasties, a new feudal system that takes over before you know it. And it happened. So in the 1800s, there were big, big movements, but all aligned together. There were contact men that were in between the socialist movements, the communist movements, the different fragments in, in uh, France uh, that had different kinds of, of ideas of communism and the ones in Germany, Britain, and so on. But to hear them using the same terms today is quite fascinating. And, and remember, too, uh, in communism, the sacred color was not red. Red was the main color, their open color for revolution and symbolizing blood and bloodshed. But green was a sacred color. And from there we find even um, the Green Party was born because it was a member, the granddaughter of one of, the, one of Stalin's right-hand men who came up with the Green Party. And then you start putting the pieces together and you find out that sure enough we know that the West funded communism from its birth. The banks in London and New York funded it into existence. Uh, the granaries and the farmers of uh, mainly Canada and the U.S. fed the Soviet system all through its reign. So they created the dialectic, the right and the left. Always two, always two ways to go. And every choice they give you two. And we think it's quite normal. We go along one of them, we pick one. And never thinking that, why is there only two choices here? And who made them? Because we're getting guided along a plan that was born a long time ago that reared its head in the 1500s for the first time in Queen Elizabeth I's court. John Dee wrote about it. He wrote about the creation of what he called a, a brightish empire, an empire that would be based on a form of free trade to amalgamate the world but under the same system. And remember, in John Dee's day, there was no such thing as what we now think of as democracy. The monarchy, the aristocracy, were to be at the top. No matter what kind of front government they gave the people, the aristocracy would still be in charge. Free trade, and even countries would be given most favored nation status, trading status, a term We've only heard in the 20th century, towards the end of the 20th century, again through the United Nations. The Rosicrucians went through many different changes, and they spun, they spun off branches of themselves, just like the old monks used to do. Specific branches of monks and priests would spawn off another school or monastery that was specialized in certain areas. And that's how they used to be at one time. They specialized in specific areas of societal control. And Freemasonry, as it came into being, also did the same thing. Specialized areas for specialized segments of society. One's for Catholics, one for Protestants. Uh, Jews can go in, the Mohammedans can come in. In fact, anyone can come in today. But it was all to get a network, initially, of revolutionary changes working throughout society quietly uh, and sometimes even in the open under different guises that front groups 
knowing that they wouldn't see the end of their great work in their own lifetime, and that that's why it works so well. Very few generations stop to think that why is everything the way it is today? How come even in 50 years, one major goal has been achieved, and that was almost the destruction of the family unit. It's almost been achieved. By the very techniques that they said they'd employ, which would be encouraging but promiscuity from a very early age, encourage the, the, the actual goal that you want. They have the problem, you deal with the problem, you dehumanize society, we come off our pedestals, we're now another animal. And we know where it's all going from there because now we can get harvested often without permission. And harvesting is a farming term. We're being farmed. We're owned, you see. And you can understand why many people would join uh, these groups back in the 1800s and 1700s where they thought that this, this work, this great work, would bring in a just society. They'd never seen a just society before. And it was never intended that the workers lead this. It was always intended that an intelligentsia would lead it. And most of the writers in the 17 and 1800s were, were, these journalists were actually often the leaders of these movements. But they were being funded by big bankers all the way, all the way along. Albert Pike made a reference to this he talked about the creation of foundations. And he said, eventually, by using every means possible, even the stock market, climbing our way up to the top, we shall become masters over the masters of the world. And all through the movements for communism, socialism, which became fascism too, you had pre-Masonic lodges. They met in the lodges and discussed the revolutions and their methods of obtaining their objectives. The French history books are often polite enough to call them coffee houses. But when they closed the door, they unrolled their jewels, as they call them, and laid them out on the floor, created the altar, the tesserated floor, etc. And then they had their, their secret meetings. Benjamin Franklin did the same thing in the United States. He was quite open about it and how he got into it in his own writings. Benjamin Franklin was also on trial for murder, for setting a, a candidate on fire. But because they had uh, very wealthy friends, he got off with it, and they said it was just some sort of prank that went out of hand. But these guys all belonged to these particular pre-Masonic societies that we are now taught today, and it's very true that the bottom level of the dischargeable organization is ground with tin cans and and play little games for children, that's a good cover, but the ones at the top, the ones who get to the top, have specific qualities, and they're tested for them throughout, because they have a mission for the great work. The mission came out in the days of Madame Blavatsky, who she said the goal of theosophy, which eventually was given a Masonic charter, the goal was to blend the world of spirit with that of Science. Science is very important. And I'll be back with more of this after the following messages.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. I should mention too for the newcomers to look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com to download talks I've given in the past that help to fill in all the little gaps that they don't give you in the, the schools when they, if they even give you any history anymore. And also look into alanwattsentinel.eu and download the transcripts which you can print up and pass around and they're in the various tongues of Europe. But I was just going over a little bit, just a little dash in the time that we have of how we arrived at where we are today. They always give you a dialectic. That's the essence of it. This or that, which you want to choose, left or right, this or that. It's always this or that. And we don't realize that really our decisions are being formulated for us. And depending on your mindset and your condition and your, your state of living, you'll vote this way or that way. And that's what politicians count on, too. It's all a big con game. And uh, it, it was steered. You steer. It's like sheepdogs. If you watch sheepdogs, nicely watch them in, in Britain. They'd have sheepdog trials every so often up in the hills in Scotland. And when you have a whole bunch of sheep scattered about there, happily eating, they don't want to move. And so you generally use one or two sheepdogs. Two makes it easier and quicker. Because one will come down the hill from one side, one will come down from the opposite side, this little valley. And between the two, they steer them towards the pen they want them to go to. Uh, and the sheep look at one dog and the other and go the middle way. Uh, this will be, It's simple to drive them along uh, a path, even a straight path if you want, by that technique. And this technique wasn't invented in the, in the 1800s by Marx and Engels. It pre-existed just thousands of years old, this particular knowledge, and it's still working today. Now, in the 1800s, the, people had such a hard time, they'd had a hard time for centuries with the church, and all churches, actually, because um, the Protestant ones were just as bad. Some places in Scotland and England had four churches on every corner, on the crossroads in the middle of town. Huge things, you know, which took tremendous upkeep. And this could make them big enough and more expensive enough. And the same thing is happening in America today because it's so intensely uh, involved with commerce. Commerce and religion go together. And I was thinking about indulgences because the Catholic Church for a long, long time had sold indulgences as kind of like a, an extra insurance policy. Uh, so you you wait to heaven, but you prayed the whole way after you were deceased, and so on. And so here you are, you are for centuries. Indulgences were sold for big money, and people were taught to believe in it. And, and hell was terribly real, and you wouldn't get there if you if you you know if you missed anything, your confessions and all that. And so you had this kind of uh, side insurance policy of indulgences, so you'd be forgiven for everything. And no ordinary priest would do it. We'd go all the way up to the Vatican if you could afford it. And they'd have their little joke and, uh, and, and got their money and you would be happy that you were going to heaven. Today, it's the same con job that's going on. Only, and why change it? After all, it works. Because they come up with this whole idea of global warming and carbon taxes. The same thing. The same thing. A carbon taxes. A complete abstract phenomena carbon taxes 
and I won't even go into to the to the nonsense of do you believe in it or do you not believe in it? Uh, that's what you're meant to do. That's your left and right again. You see, the fact is you've been conned once again because the Club of Rome, a big think tank, massive think tank, connected with all the other big think tanks that run your world for you, came up with the idea of global warming to unite the planet back in the 1970s. And they published it in their own book, published by the Club of Rome, called The First Global Revolution. And they said they're looking for a way to unite everyone, and they, and they hit upon the idea of claiming we were altering uh, the planet's atmosphere, and causing warming, destroying the planet, and therefore the public would be the enemy. You see, a new war, not only to save the planet, but to, a war on humanity as such, because reduce our, our, our numbers our way of living and all the rest of it. That was an idea, one of many they came up with, but that's the one they chose. And heavily financed and backed by the big foundations, once again, remember, they back all these big movements that really run your lives, the foundations, their fronts, for a very high aristocracy. Uh, Then these NGOs come forth as though they're somehow the new democracy. And that's how they're presented to the public, all these different names that you hear, the Friends of the Earth and all the rest of it, these are all NGOs paid and led by the big foundations. You don't elect them. But this global warming idea and carbon taxes, as though if something on a massive scale was happening, a monumental scale was happening, and, and believe you me, it does happen, because when I went to school, they said even then with the test bores they'd done in North Pole, they could tell there was at least a hundred ice ages before this. And that means that there's been warming ages between the ice ages, or you'd have one continuous ice age. Okay? Common sense. And they have all this, this, this kind of knowledge tucked away in archives. And they've conveniently removed all the old history books where you could tell in the Middle Ages for 200 years in Europe they, they didn't build any fires or fireplaces inside their homes even to cook with because they had 200 years of very warm periods, much warmer than now. Then it went back to what it was. So you go up and down all the time. So this whole warming thing is nonsense. And never mind that, you'll notice when they spray the skies heavily back and forth, these jets that have been doing for 10 years now that aren't supposed to exist, and everyone's got photographs of them, uh, you'll you'll see it gets warmer. It actually reflects the heat, keeps it back in. So they're creating this whole global warming thing, and the one saviour is going to be money. Money, amazing. Money is is at one, the war on poverty, Uh, the war on drugs, but the war on anything has all this money, all this rip-off taxation phenomena we've experienced help anything. No, because it's all a con. It's all a big con. And this is from the UK version, the international version of the BBC News on Wednesday the 23rd January 2008. European Commission President José Manuel Barroso has announced historic plans to make Europe the first economy for the low-carbon age. You see? And he, he was on with a traditional statement. He said Europeans wanted... You'll notice that when, they, when, when they, they want to unite, you'd always say that the British have want or the Canadians want or Americans want. We, never get any, we don't get asked anything at all. There's not even a poll taken. But this is how they do it in traditional ways, you see. Europeans wanted a vision, a vision and a plan of action 
against climate change and the measures would cost three euros, that's two pounds ten a week for every citizen. The aim would be a 20% cut in the EU's greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. You see, this is a substitute for indulgences. It's another farcical fantasy. That's what it is. But it's to change your whole way of living, by the way. He told the European Parliament there was a cost, but it was manageable. Yeah, he won't be paying it. Mr. Barroso put the figure at 60 billion euros a year. 60 billion euros a year until 2020. A real commitment, he says, but not a bad deal. It would mean a rise in the electricity prices of 10 to 15 percent, but there would be less reliance on energy imports. He said work had to start to cut global emissions in half by 2050, and he said Europe could lead the way. Now, you'll notice these guys, again, are doing their long-term projections, because most folk today, it's 2008, don't really care about 2050. That's how we are. That's how we live and think. And they know this stuff. I'll be back with more of this con game after the following messages. On demand, this is We the People Radio Network.
He said, addressing business critics who have complained that the proposals might drive industry away from the European Union, the Commission President said energy-intensive industries would be given emission allowances free of charge. So that's not bad. The big boys get off with it again, you see. But you little characters at home will be taxed at the hilt. He told MEPs, I guess that's the European Parliament, uh, members of the European Parliament, the package was not in favour of the environment and against the economy. We don't want to export our jobs to other parts of the world, he said. Now, what a, a joke, because the whole idea of when they signed uh, the beginnings of the integration of Europe in 1948, when they set up all the bureaucracies in every country in Europe, quietly and secretively to do this, they talked about the need to to de-industrialize. That was also part of the package that was signed at the United Nations in 1945-46. So these characters are, but then politicians are, are not known for telling truths, obviously, and, but they do expect the public to have a short memory. Carbon allowances, environmental groups, environmental groups. So here you are again, another holy term here, a new priesthood, environmental groups. As though there are any different. You see, what are, what are environmental groups? Groups are groups. I can get a bunch of people in my field there. It's now a group, you see. Environmental groups, holy status, believe the Commission should be planning for the higher target of 30%. So once again, these non-governmental organizations funded by the big foundations, which own all the energy in the planet pretty well, these big foundations, want to go higher and pretend they're speaking on behalf of the public. This is how the con game works, and this is the Soviet, by the way. Scientists warn that a cut of at least 30% is required to prevent climatic catastrophe. Scientists, doesn't see which ones, uh, said Tony Jupiter, director of Friends of the Earth UK. I guess everybody else who's not part of the group is an enemy of the Earth. The solutions already exist. What we lack is political ambition and courage. The Commission's proposals would see the Commission, the Emissions Trading Scheme, that's the ETS, isn't that beautiful? You thought ET was extraterrestrial. ETS extended to include more industrial sectors in the years between 2013 and 2020. Apart from a few exempt industries, the power sector would lose the right to free emission allocations and have to buy all its permits at auction. So you can actually buy permits at auction from 2013 onwards and, so, and for your pollution that you're going to cost. It's like paying for the sins you're going to commit. You know, same con game. Isn't that beautiful? Aviation and other industries would move gradually to a full auction. Companies' carbon allowances <laughs> would be decided at European level, replacing the current system where nations submit bids to the Commission. The aim would be to reduce allowances so that by 2020, emissions from the sectors included would be about 21% below the level they were when the ETs started in 2005. For emissions not covered by the ETS, such as transport buildings and agriculture, the Commission has proposed national targets. Now, here's the, the, the clincher. Now, this was decided at the League of Nations at the end of World War I, when they were going to bring up uh, or, or actually standardize the planet in the same system. Richer nations would have to cut their emissions to for the target for Denmark and the Irish Republics, blah, blah, blah. The poorest countries will be allowed to increase emissions. The poorest countries will be allowed to increase emissions. And that's why China was allowed to get away with the, the, the pollution that they're causing. That's all part of this UN agenda. So the richer countries are to pay for the poorer ones, which can pretty well, where all the big international corporations move to. Isn't that clever? Right? 
carbon savings. Each country has been given a national target for renewable energy. And this was on and on and on and on. And uh, this is just amazing. Another, another form of indulgences. Uh, a great con game that's going to alter entire lives because we'll all have to go along with it. And new bureaucracies are sprouting up all over the place. Uh, these new priesthoods uh, who are pushing this whole religion down our throats and how we must change our way of living to suit old Mother Earth. Green, green, as green they say on the far side of the hill. Now we've got, we've got Dave in Ohio. Are you there, Dave? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I hear you, Alan. I've been listening to you now for a couple of years, and I've got a couple of your books, and I read them, and uh, I hear you talk to us about, um, you know, the con job of organized religion and uh, the New Age and uh, Benai Birth and Blavatsky and Theosophy and um, all these kinds of inauthentic religions. And I was just wondering if you could uh, speak maybe a little bit about what you think are the components of uh, authentic spirituality and maybe how uh, one gets in touch, <coughs> excuse me, with um, or disposes oneself to, to the higher dimension. Because given, I believe that, uh, you know, consciousness is more than like the sum total of uh, electrochemical or neurophysiological processes and so on. So. Mm. If there is a higher reality, you know, given that you've debunked all these other false religions and how our religious leaders aren't speaking about what's really going on and how the, they're trying to feed us all these new priesthoods, mm -hmm. I mean, what could you say toward, you know, something that's authentic? Whatever is authentic would have to be, make sense only to the person involved. It's not you something that... You see, people come out of their old religions looking for something similar, which is generally a mass movement with, with uh, rituals to follow that get you from A, B, C, D, E to, to full-fledged whatever. Um, so they, they go shopping for new religions. That's why they always supply them for a new age, to give you new religions. And people go shopping, and there's only a slight variation in each one. Uh, they're all termed the new age, which all link in together with the greening project and all this kind of stuff, uh, planned a long time ago. But for uh, any, any uh, true experience, put it that way, to make sense, it must happen to an individual. It's not something either you could hand to someone and say, get on your knees ten times a day and do this, or it's nothing to do with that. Uh, all searches begin with the individual themselves. You have to look at yourself because all the answers uh, that you're looking for generally are within yourself. All the problems you see in society, you have the capabilities of, of manifesting in yourself as well, but you also have the solutions that you can only work out for yourself within your own uh, the, your little sphere of influence. So it's only from the self can you have a true experience, which probably will make no sense to someone else. But that's, that's more of an imminent type thing. Don't you think there's something transcendent that one needs to be in touch with so that, um, you know, one is um, in tune with, with, with God or whatever your God may be? Well, that's just it. You see, that could only happen, whatever that is. Whatever that is, if, if, um, if you're honestly seeking, it would never happen to, like, an army of people all at once. Um, 
they used, they used to say in ancient times that the Creator could only speak to one person at a time when that person was ready to hear. Uh, some people are never ready to hear. Everyone knows that, or, or feels there's something bigger beyond all of this. Uh, it's getting in touch with something like that that makes you wonder. And generally that only happens when you're pretty well broken at some point in your life. Uh, hang on. Uh, yeah, hang on. We'll be back after these messages. for some reason. 
because we live on ego. We do live on ego. And we're, we'd put a front on to, to people a persona, and especially in a fake system like this where uh, success is, is equated with, and uh, happiness is equated with wealth um, and having the material things and being uh, um, looked upon favorably by society. Um, sometimes you get broken through illness or someone dies or something really awful happens and rather than just get over it you, you're required to go on a little journey to, to try and find out what's beyond all of this and reevaluate what is value in your own life your life and no one else's uh, that's the start of it so you're saying you strip yourself of the trappings of the ego you, you have to, yeah, there's no other way and by that I mean the, the false ego the, the, see most people's egos are just a climate to, it's a sort of you, you're you copy the system. Your ego goes along with the system. It's all to do with what we think of as being successful. So, so you and, and it's not just a class thing either, you know. So you're differentiating maybe the ego from what maybe like Jung would call the self? Uh, he, he called it the self as well, although he went and split it into different parts, even from the self. Uh, you don't even have to go that far. Um, as I say, it's all a matter of true value, true value. Uh, what is real value to you that makes you complete as opposed to what society tells you is value. Uh, anything in the physical world can be lost uh, tomorrow, tonight, next, next, the next minute can be gone. Uh, so there's nothing really of value. Um, it's like when you die and people die uh, in hospitals and if you ever visit them, you'll often hear them telling you, the elderly people, I wish I'd done this and I wish I'd done that. Well, it's too late to do it then, you see. Um, you, you have to, and yet they, they come to a point sometime in their life where, where something else took on meaning, but they went right back into the same mainstream and, and forgot about it. Now it's too late. They call that their fellow syndrome. Uh, you, you view the past with sorrow and the future with dismay because you're too old to do anything and, and do it properly for the future. You're on your way out. So that's what I mean by that. Uh, you reevaluate what worth truly is. And, and um, do you want things or people? What's more important to you? You'll find that most people will choose the things, the, the reassurance of the wealth of the material world over each other, especially in today's society. So you think when someone has an intuition or a feeling of, yes, this is the right way, that there are some kind of confirmations or signposts that one gets to, to encourage oneself to go on, or is it pretty much that you're always in the dark? Uh, no, sometimes you, you, you have a little bit more intuition that it's just more than just a, a little um, passing, a passing feeling. Uh, but generally, it's up to you. you. You're the only one who can interpret that for yourself. And, and regardless, uh, is it, does it give you value? Does it, is it proof of value to you personally? That's more important. Okay. Yep. Well, thanks for calling. Thanks, Alan. And... Now I've got Judy in New York. I'm trying to refresh my screen here. Hello. Are you there? Hello. Hello. Hello, Judd. Yes, Judd. Judd. Okay. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, I just I just wanted to touch up on what you were saying about um like the opposing forces and like religion how it's been used against us. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just wanted to express to you how it surprised me how like that above below system even was permeating in, 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 in Christianity as God and devil was like and I realized it was my whole reality mm -hmm. and I yeah. don't know I just wanted to 
explain that. I just wanted to tell you that. And, um, yeah, and, and you're always saying how people ask you, like, tell you, is there any hope? Is there any hope? And I was reading um, Orwell, George Orwell's book, and he said it perfectly. And can I read the quote? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. He said, there is no possibility that any perceptible change will happen within our lifetime. We are the dead. Our true life is in the future. We shall take part in it as, a hand, as handfuls of dust and splinters of bone. But how far away that future may be, there is no knowing. It might be a thousand years, our present, nothing is possible except to extend the area of sanity little by little. We can only spread our knowledge outwards from individual to individual, generation after generation, in the face of the dark police, there is no other way. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, he, he, see, he was in on the agenda. He knew because he was recruited into the agenda. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and he was employed too during World War II in the propaganda department of the BBC. And, and he'd been recruited to go and fight for the agenda, which he had initially believed in until he got into the higher aspects of it. And, and he realized that these guys do work in, in centuries and thousands of years. And the only way anything that would counter it or even deflect it and, and retain what he, he said it's humanity you're trying to retain, remember. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very important part. He knew that this, uh, this system would try to knock what we call humanity out of us and make us more like robots. And he said it's not, it's, it's not um, just winning or fighting. It's, it's, it's important. It says it's retaining your humanity going through it all. And he was talking about a far-ranging plan. And hopefully, uh, maybe when we come past this, this next phase of, of the cyborgs and, and all the other mutations they're going to create alongside it, um, we'll be able to reintroduce something when it all uh, falls to pieces. There's nothing natural in our system understand yes. and when, when, when man starts playing God and they really are playing God when they get into the, the minute matters of life and, and the minuscule parts of life something that the ancients knew about the Greeks came up with the atomic theory back you know thousands of years ago you know long before supposedly that microscope they knew all this stuff and um, and so this ancient system uh, from Egypt to Pythagoras on down and through the schools of the atomic school um, knew that they would eventually tamper with the very smallest parts of, of creation and become gods, they claimed. Well, gods have a habit of fighting with each other, if you look at mythology. <laughs> and, and when they do, all the little people get stomped on the ground, so millions of us go along with them. Uh, so all we can do is hope we retain our humanity, because that's the only saving grace we have for survival, is helping each other. Exactly. Yeah. All right, thanks. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for calling. Yeah, and that's the that's the fact. You see, survival isn't just a personal thing. Survival in all ages, because man has always been a, a tribal creature. Um, survival depended upon helping everyone in the tribe, because they will help you, and that's how it all works. When we turn our backs on that, we're in big trouble. Big big trouble. And that's what the government's done. They're trying to isolate everyone from everyone else. So they're the ultimate masters of all. We're back with more about this after these messages. <laughs> 